It's true that some things change as we get older. But if you're a woman over 40 and you're dealing with insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, and weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. And with MIDI Health, you can get help and stop pushing through it alone. The experts at MIDI understand that all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes that happen around menopause. And MIDI can help you feel more like yourself again. Many healthcare providers aren't trained to treat or even recognize menopause symptoms. MIDI clinicians are menopause experts. They're dedicated to providing safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions for dozens of hormonal symptoms, not just hot flashes. Most importantly, they're covered by insurance. 91% of MIDI patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. You deserve to feel great. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. That's joinmidi.com. Brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, achy joints, weight gain. Maybe you're thinking they're all just part of getting older, or that's what your doctor tells you. But MIDI Health understands that for women over 40, they can all be connected. Hormonal changes that happen during perimenopause and menopause are at the root of dozens of symptoms women experience, not just hot flashes. MIDI specializes in compassionate care for women in menopause. Their solutions are safe, effective, and FDA-approved. Plus, they're covered by insurance. A convenient telehealth visit with a MIDI clinician can be your first step to getting personalized care. They'll tailor a treatment plan for your symptoms and health history, so you can get back to feeling great. 91% of MIDI patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. When your body changes, your care should too. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. That's joinmidi.com. Death by Champagne, the podcast here to keep you up at night. We are back with our second book series of the season where we cover Yellowbird by Sierra Crane Murdoch. We have a lot to unpack this episode and start by covering the history of the three affiliated tribes, also referred to as the NHA, Mandan, Hidatsa, and Arikara tribes in North Dakota. We give some background information to our key individuals, including how Murdoch came to research the story, our main protagonist, Lissa Yellowbird's history, and our victim, Christopher Clark, aka KC. This episode contains a lot of history regarding Indigenous Americans and the horrifying things the government did to them. Discussions of drugs, addiction, rape, and murder. We'll do our best to stay on track, but the bottles are popped. Hey guys! Hi, welcome back to Death by Champagne, series two of season four, even though our seasons are kind of meaningless. (laughs) They really are. They're just a little marker of time for us. Mm -hmm. Um, Unfortunately, I do get to walk back something that I just said in the Patreon episode that came out uh, this past Friday. 
I made a very flippant comment about how I'm very surprised that no one has like attacked us on Twitter or yelled at us ever for our political leanings and being transparent about them. I woke up this morning and someone had told me to fuck off, you moron. <laughs> no. Yeah. Like a private message or just like out in the open for everyone? To see? No, um, it was another podcast, which I thought oh. was very bold to do that from wow. their podcast account. <laughs> Yikes. Yeah. I mean, I, I had tweeted something. I said, a, I said a lot of stuff in a very short wow. message because that's how Twitter works. Right. So my sweeping generalization that all white people are racist did not sit well with them. <laughs> because they're racist. I Sounds mean, like... <laughs> That's they said conclusion. they're not, and that's fine. <laughs> Maybe you can be. I said Ooh. I was very proud of my response. I just said, if you want to talk about this more, and you can refrain from telling me to fuck myself or yeah. calling me names anymore, then we can talk about it. Otherwise, did it make you feel good to say that to me? Right. <laughs> like, what are our goals here? <laughs> <laughs> if we're going to talk about this, we're going to have a productive oh, conversation. Man. You're not just going to tell me to fuck myself and then disappear. Yeah. Good for or you continue for... to like abuse other people on the right. thread. Right. No, no, no. Oh man. So that's I'm... how to not have fun. I don't know how you do it. Handle our Twitter. I mean, I've never had honestly, this is like the first time that's ever happened. And I don't care. <laughs> it honestly made me laugh out loud. I was just like, I Oh my gosh. I know I would have just about... blocked them. I would have, there'd be no one on our Twitter account because someone would have made me mad by now, and I would have just blocked everyone. <laughs> oh, I just like I said if you don't everyone. like <laughs> I said if you don't like what I have to say, you can always block me. I mean that is valid. That, that was part of the valid. message. I was like, yeah. you can go. You don't have to stay. Oh my gosh! I just have all the eye rolls for that. I mean, it was one conversation in a vacuum about a specific article that I linked, but. Whatever. (laughs) Other than that, we just recorded last week, so I don't, not even a week ago. So I feel like I don't have anything to say other than I got my ass kicked this morning in a circus class. Oh, nice. Yeah, we we just talked, so we don't have a lot. I spent the day at the pool yesterday, which was nice. Chris's sister's pool. Oh, man. So nice. Did you touch the water? Um, I put my feet in and it was ice cold. So I didn't get any more of that tracks. It's really early for a pool to be open. (laughs) Yeah. It was also nice just to like hang out with his family because we've literally not. I mean, we haven't been in the same room with them for more than a year now. Literally probably since last Christmas, like not 2020 Christmas, 2019 Christmas. It's a long time coming. Yeah. Oh, yeah. This weekend is our our vaccination kickoff. We are both officially vaccinated yes, now. <laughs> fully vaccinated. Two weeks out, so we are good to go. I'm so excited. Yeah. I want to go to brunch. <laughs> <laughs> Have to. I feel like I've been deprived for so long. I know. We do need a good brunch date. I actually talked about that. Um, I had my second or third therapy session, and we were talking about the the time change like on top of the time change just like the changing times all wrapped oh, up into yeah, one yeah. and i was like i feel like it hasn't affected me that much like i know that's not true but now that we're talking about it i just can't pinpoint anything that made me upset other than uncertainty <laughs> i was like i don't know i think we have Valid. to come back to that i can't i can't spell anything out yeah definitely i think i'll notice it more when i do go to like do things with people 
And then I'm going to be like, oh, fuck, no. <laughs> this is bad. Like, this is actually not what I want. <laughs> you I feel be like back a, to being locked in my house. I'll go f- really hard for quite a while, <laughs> and then I'll have all the plans, and then I'm going to burn out about June <laughs> and be really tired again. And then just not leave your house. Yeah, well, we're moving again, so right. a lot of my time up until then will be moving, which yeah. I'm sad about, but whatever. That's sad. Facts of life. <laughs> Truth. So should we dive right in? We've got we a... should dive in. We have a lot. <laughs> We've got thick, a lot of ground to cover. <laughs> a thick episode. Mm-hmm. So our second book, we decided to cover Yellowbird by Sierra Crane Murdoch. And this is anything but a neatly palatable narrative. By combining the history of the Mandan, Hadatsa, Arikara tribes, a profile of a citizen investigator named Lissa Yellowbird, and a criminal enterprise created through a legacy of exploitation, Sierra Crane Murdoch tells the story of a missing Spokane oil worker, Christopher Casey Clark. By giving context to the conditions the people featured in the book are working and living in, rather than skipping straight to the crimes committed by a tangle of people in the midst of an oil boom, Murdoch walks us through a landscape of over a century of circumstances that influence everyone involved. This is much more than the story of a murder-for-hire plot. Yellowbird gives us pieces over a hundred years of wrongdoing against the MHA people by the United States government. It presents the reader a spotlight with which to truly understand how this violent damage throughout history created the stage for the later crimes to occur. Murdoch explains her layering of the tribe's history from the Garrison Dam onward to the oil boom as the culmination of a legacy of white violence and exploitation of indigenous resources and communities. What we end up with is another generation of white men profiting off indigenous people and their land, and a clear vision of the internal struggle of the MHA people on how to handle their future. So we want to say if at any point this starts to feel uncomfortable or offensive to you as a listener to hear about the history specifically concerning white people, I would challenge you to imagine this from the perspective of the three affiliated tribes. Whiteness is very relevant to this story. There is a very clear pattern of white people exploiting indigenous Americans in their history. And as easy as it is to be flippant about, like, oh my gosh, white people, here they come again, like even we are apt to do, white people are responsible for many of the events we're going to talk about. So if it's uncomfortable, sit with it and try to see it from another perspective. Imparting a learning tool from my own brain, if the first thing you feel about something is outrage, if you feel that emotion come on quickly when you're learning something new, the first thing I think about is, you don't know all the facts, there's more here. Sometimes the more facts or the other person's perspective you're looking for makes it worse, but other times you can see the path of good intentions on the road to hell. It's a very hard thing to explain, but I do see on, you know, each individual small scale of a person's life through all this history, why those individual people may have made the choices they did. Also throughout this book, there are different terms used. When referencing conversations or quotes written by Murdoch, we will use the terms she and the interviewees do. When we are in our own conversations, we will try to be clear which tribe someone is from or use the more encompassing term indigenous American. To quote the author Sierra Murdoch, the danger of writing a book about someone with a cultural and political background that most people know nothing about is that a reader might begin to think they understand everything about that kind of person because they read the book. 
The book fills a void that should have been filled by the public school curriculum. A reader who has never met a Native American might believe that every woman of that identity is like Lissa, when in reality, Lissa, whose experiences indeed are common, is the most iconoclastic person I know. To jump right into a little bit about our protagonist, Lissa Yellowbird was 46 years old when she and Sierra Crane Murdoch met in 2014, two years after Christopher Clark, a 29-year-old oil worker, disappeared from the reservation. Murdoch was at the tribal newspaper offices when a woman there suggested she should interview Lissa Yellowbird for the articles she was writing about Casey's disappearance. Lissa happened to be out looking for his body as they spoke. Sierra Murdoch, from her own bio on her website, is, quote, a journalist and essayist whose work concerns primarily communities in the American West. Her stories about the Mandan Hadatsa Arikara Nation began in 2011 when she was working for the High Country Times out of Colorado. She covered the back and oil boom in North Dakota for High Country, and along the way, collected an amazing amount of stories about the people there. Described in Yellowbird, Lissa was at different points, a prison guard, bartender, stripper, sex worker, advocate for tribal court, a carpenter, bondsman, laundry attendant, and welder. The complexity of her story almost made her an even more unlikely ally to Casey and other missing people from the reservation than Sierra herself might have been as a white journalist. Initially, Sierra covered the rise in crime on the reservation connected to the oil boom. The surge of non-natives to the area brought with them an increase in violence against Native women, drugs, and policing issues due to restrictions between state, local, and tribal police. In her book, Sierra recounts that there was a sense of impunity from the non-natives who worked there, with one man citing that you could, quote, get away with anything short of killing someone on the reservation. From a video interview in conjunction with the Lake Agassiz Regional Library in Minnesota, once she heard about Casey's disappearance— Sierra understood the legal complications that could plague the case. In an article published with The Atlantic and recounted in Yellowbird, Sierra writes about a 16-year-old minor who was raped on the reservation. She was not a tribal member. She was intoxicated and confused and wasn't sure if the men who assaulted her were white, Latino, or Native. This mattered because the right officers had to handle the case. A quote from that Atlantic piece titled, On Indian Land, Criminals Can Get Away With Almost Anything. In 1978, the Supreme Court case Oliphant v. Suquamish stripped tribes of the right to arrest and prosecute non-Indians who commit crimes on Indian land. If both victim and perpetrator are non-Indian, a county or state officer must make the arrest. If the perpetrator is non-Indian and the victim is an enrolled member, only a federally certified agent has that right. If the opposite is true, a tribal officer can make the arrest, but the case still goes to federal court. If she didn't know if her attackers were tribal members, the investigation would be hard to follow through on. These kinds of hurdles come into play many times in the book. Complicated laws, gaping loopholes, and corruption make the legal system feel like the inside of a pinball machine. Moving back to Lissa, to give you a general feel for Lissa Yellowbird's attitude, she has a Facebook page you can follow, and her personality is relayed nicely in her cover photo and page description. In quotes, my biggest flex is I'm exactly who I say I am, so I don't have to fake shit. And I'm chaotic neutral. Always have been, always will be. That day when they met for the first time, Sierra waited at the offices for Lissa to return from her search. And when she did, in quotes from Yellowbird, her face was luminous with cold, her hair flecked with ice. She did not shake my hand or say hello, but spoke as if we had seen each other just that morning. So we're going to break a little bit um, from some of the more direct people involved in the disappearance of Casey Clark and talk about some of the history in Yellowbird. To understand Fort Berthold, Lissa, and the socio-political landscape, the reader has to know more about the three affiliated tribes. Outside of buying Yellowbird and just reading it for yourself, you can also visit 
mhanation.com slash history. And that's my main source for this section. I'm going to try to keep this part brief, but it's worth learning to gain that deeper understanding of the impact the Bakken oil boom had on the area. The Mandan, Hidatsa, and Arikara people believe that they have resided in North America since, quote, the beginning of time. In the historical overview section of this site, we find the information that, quote, the Mandan, Hidatsa, and Sanish live on the Missouri River area. Historians document the first tribe to occupy this area was the Mandan with the Hidatsa and the Sanish moving up the river later. Another note from this section, it is important to be mindful that the Arikara people called themselves Sanish, which means the original people from whom all other tribes sprang. The Mandan tribe was the first of the three to land in North Dakota. Their history can be traced to an encounter with a French fur trader in 1738. The Mandan developed a, quote, focal point of trade on the Missouri River. They became very prosperous in North Dakota, occupying nine large villages through the Missouri and Hart Rivers. It's theorized that they originated from southern Minnesota and northern Iowa before migrating to South Dakota around 900 AD. So just to clarify on the timelines here, there are several sources we've used that will all be listed in the show notes that give varying timelines and evidence supporting them as to when these people, you know, when people say they have evidence of Mm -hmm. when these tribes were in the areas that they're in. But most of those things include AD and BC. So like way before right. Europeans. Yes. Way before. <laughs> way before. The Hidatsa tribe also had contact with Europeans in the early 18th century. Their history can be traced to three distinct people. The Hidatsa proper, the largest of the three, the Awatika, a small group, and the Awakawe. Throughout the 1600s, the group moved westward, and during this transition, migration occurred for the three distinct people, with the Awatika settling, in quotes, at the mouth of the Knife River in North Dakota. Another separation happened over a dispute about dividing up a buffalo. During this dispute, a group continued their trans transition up the Missouri River and became known as the Paunch Indians. The group who remained near the original Hadatsa villages were known as the Hadatsa. The Arikara were part of the Sanish tribe. Their history originates in eastern Nebraska, where they had numerous villages. 43 in total were counted by explorer Etienne Venard de Bramont in 1714. The Arikara's westward movement, according to Sanish oral historians, in quotes, was not random or without purpose, but was the westward migration in fulfillment of the directive given to them by chief above, through an ancient tradition and from a sacred being called Mother Corn. In 1833, the Sanish left the Missouri River to head back to Nebraska after numerous crop failures and conflicts with the Mandan tribe. They only lasted about three years back in Nebraska, where they were more susceptible to attack by the whites and the Sioux. In 1836, they moved back to North Dakota along the Missouri River. In 1837, the smallpox epidemic devastated many of these tribes. The survivors from the remaining villages from Mandan and Hidasta formed into one group before moving up the Missouri River together in 1845 to establish Like a Fishhook Village. The Sanish tribe migrated to Like a Fishhook Village in 1862 after a fourth smallpox outbreak and a number of raids by the Sioux cut their tribal member count in half. So to sum up this section, each tribe, in quotes, maintained separate bands, clan systems, and separate ceremonial bundles until the smallpox epidemic forced them to join together in order to survive. And so the three affiliated tribes was created as they all migrated to and made their home at Like a Fishhook Village, 
before growing into more villages when, in 1851, the Fort Berthold Reservation is established. I included in this section a quote from Yellowbird. The MHA Nation is a sovereign entity with rights to govern like those of a state, and its own laws and regulations determining how outside interests gain access to its resources. It is also, as federal case law puts it, a domestic dependent nation. The tribe's dependency on the United States has been manufactured and reinforced by more than a century of federal policies designed to undermine the sovereignty of the tribes and assimilate their citizens into European-American society. While in recent decades the federal government has given back to the tribes some rights it took, it is this legacy of paternalism that left the MHA nation uniquely vulnerable to exploitation throughout the boom. So to set up some of what's happening, we're going to see a pattern take place in the next bit of history. So like Olivia said, 1851 is when Fort Berthold Reservation was established, and that's within the boundaries of land that was set aside for reservations by the 1851 Fort Laramie Treaty between the U.S. government and a group of tribes, including the Mandan, Hidatsa, Arikara, and Sioux Nations. Murdoch pulls out a very relevant piece of language from the treaty, in quotes, in exchange for making a lasting and effective peace with neighboring tribes and white settlers, the U.S. pledged to protect each tribe against the commission of all depredations by the people of the said United States and provide annuities, food, material, and tools necessary to the tribe's survival while confined to reservations. Through both Yellowbird and many other online sources, you can read about the immediate and severe violations to this treaty. One of the sources I used for this section is a thesis written by Stephen Robert Aoun, A-O-U-N. I am unsure of the pronunciation of his last name. The title of the paper is Breakdown of Relations, American Expansionism, the Great Plains, and the Arikara People, 1823 to 1957. And he wrote that in 2019 while at Virginia Commonwealth University. He gives a really good background of the history of how the Arikara people came to the Dakotas and what life was like between the tribes when they started encountering white explorers or colonizers in the 17th and 18th century. The Arikara were a stationary people compared to the Sioux and Lakota tribes, so they were a stronghold for trading goods. Their crops and access to contact with other tribes was helpful, and those relationships were good until the European drive for buffalo hides created a capitalism-fueled tension for hunting land. To quote, the European invasion of the Great Plains destabilized pre-existing trade and diplomatic networks. For the Arikara, pressure from the French and Spanish traders precipitated a rapid decline in their trade relations with the Siouan-speaking peoples. Furthermore, relations between the Lakota and Arikara deteriorated as competition for hunting grounds intensified. Still in quotes, the expansion of Lakota and Arikara feuds cut Lakota access to Arikaran goods and Arikara villages that acted as the trading posts. As a result, the delicate economic and political balance that existed on the Great Plains prior to the arrival of Europeans became increasingly violent and uncertain prior to the 17th century. So the Sioux attacked the Arikara land, and vice versa. Eventually, the Arikara people worked with the U.S. Army as scouts. And that a very oversimplified two-sentence explanation is all to say that some of those scouts worked under General George Custer. The same General Custer who led men into the Black Hills to mine for gold after it was discovered there. And this directly violated the Treaty of 1868. The Black Hills were recognized as a sacred part of the Sioux Reservation. And if you want to learn more about that, Google the Battle of Little Bighorn. Just in this one situation, you can see how the fight for survival of the Arikara people was influenced by this accumulation of circumstances. 
It was sparked almost entirely by white men stealing the land of indigenous Americans and passing part of it back to them with no good faith to honor their own terms. A quote from OurDocuments.gov, the United States would continue its battle against the Sioux in the Black Hills until the government confiscated the land in 1877. To this day, ownership of the Black Hills remain the subject of a legal dispute between the U.S. government and the Sioux. That's insane and so, so sad. I know that in at least eighth grade and some of high school, I was taught indigenous American history. Yeah. But like, like I, I remember hearing about the Battle of Little Bighorn, but like, right. what did I learn? Nothing. None of this. Nothing. <laughs> Absolutely none of this. None of this. Like when Mm-mm. Sierra Murdoch says that this is a failure of the public school system. 100%. They don't teach us this on purpose. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I'm not sure what board is in charge of getting textbooks approved, but... Right. It is... I don't even have a word for it. No, I know. It's, it's filthy it's that horrifying. we don't learn these things. I mean, it's we're also looking at the lens of one, you know, one nation of people within it, three separate tribes or the three affiliated tribes, mm-hmm. and... You know, I understand that my public school education could not have catered this exact instance to me. But just overall, we're, we live in the Midwest. There's a ton of Native culture and history here that yes. I know nothing about. Yes, absolutely. Well, and, and everything was just, I mean, sugar-coated, I guess you could say, to make it sound not necessarily like the white people were bad people for what they did but they 100 percent were the bad people in all of these stories in the ones we heard they were never portrayed that way it was never like the white people are the villains yeah and and i'm actually gonna touch on that a little bit in the next section perfect so to continue talking about the fort laramie treaty it gave the tribes around 12 million acres total but just 29 years later the government reclaimed 8 million acres for railroad development. 11 years after that, in 1891, the remaining acreage was parceled out into 160-acre lots given to each person rather than to those tribes in total. The motivations for this separation was, one, to retain unallotted land that the government could sell to white settlers, and two, to promote individualism rather than communalism. By dealing with people individually, it was much easier to sway how the land was used or sold. And those who did not comply with the individual settlement of the land allotments were denied their annuities. They had to accept or they were left with no support. And I don't need to say that that's not a choice. That's violence. It was a violent Mm -hmm. separation of a people from its culture and the intentional control of those people's ability to live freely. It was an act of government overreach when that government should have had no say in the first place. Moving forward into history, Congress passed a Flood Control Act in 1944. The Missouri River was vital to the economy, and previous floods had ruined tons of farmland. The solution was a system of dams that would force the river into, quote, a series of reservoirs to regulate flow and ensure safe passage for grain barges. While I can't pretend to understand entirely every detail of that situation, the condition that followed, or the conditions that followed as a result are clear. This was known as the Pick-Sloan Plan, and at the barest of essential explanations, the two plans were merged together for a series of dams and power plants with a focus on, quote, flood control, irrigation, hydroelectric power, domestic and sanitary purposes, wildlife, and recreation. One part of the plan was submitted by the Army Corps of Engineers, Pick, and one by the Department of the Interior's Bureau of Reclamation, Sloan. Seems nice on the surface, right? Flood control, irrigation. Right. Clean yeah. energy. 
Great. All sounds great. Sanitary water sounds awesome. But from High Country News, from Lisa Jones, quote, President Franklin Roosevelt ordered Pick to hammer out a plan with the Bureau of Reclamation. It called for a series of dams on the upper Missouri, within its center, a 200-mile-long reservoir. The new Lake Sakakuiu would flood 436 of Fort Berthold's 531 homes, as well as every square foot of the enviable farmland tilled by the tribes. And then I have another quote from Yellowbird. The dams on the upper Missouri were located so not as to disturb white settlements. Instead, they would flood the bottomlands of eight reservations, land guaranteed to tribes by the treaty and home to thousands of families. The flooding of the bottomlands would also ruin their hospital and schools. This was a total destruction of their way of life. Their farmland was demolished, submerged forever in the new lake. That land was also more than their tangible source of food and shelter. Their sacred spaces of spirituality were also lost. From the website culturalsurvival.org, quote, Baby Hill, a grave site for infants and a prayer site for women who hope to become pregnant, is irretrievably submerged below the dam. Additionally, clan burial sites, where skulls were placed in a circular formation to mark the cohesiveness of clan bonds, have also been destroyed by the dam. The land they were relocated to is on higher ground with far less ability for farming. Quote from Yellowbird, Lakota historian Vine Deloria Jr. wrote, Pick Sloan was the single most destructive act ever perpetuated on any tribe by the United States. And this did not just happen to the MHA nation. Other tribes like the Sioux were relocated for the building of dams, and just like the MHA, they lost land that should have been theirs and were compensated for it pitifully. In a presentation of a resolution before everything was finalized, four Native councilmen stated the damage the dam would cause to their people. Quote, various treaties and executive orders have given the people of this reservation promise of perpetual use of this land, whereas we have permanently located on these lands, and our forefathers also have lived on these grounds, and it is the hopes and plans to have our children and their children occupy this land continuously forever, and money or exchange for other land will not compensate us for the land, landmarks, and sentimental attachments." So the dam that was supposed to be built on the site of where these tribes lived is the Garrison Dam. And it was specifically started in 1945, even before it had been officially passed by Congress. After the floodwaters came, a once self-sustaining people were dependent on the U.S. government. Quote, after the flood, the unemployment rate rose to 70%. The only jobs available were with the Bureau or the tribe, and the tribe's only income came from federal appropriations leasing of its pastures and small settlements it had won to account for the loss of the bottomlands. We also learn in this section that there was no running water or electricity in the relocation zone. What was supposed to be provided by the dam system was not available to the people until several years after. Quote, In 1967, 81% of people living on the reservation had to haul water to their homes from a half mile or more away. And there's also a ton of research available online about how the water that did come to the tribes and those geographic locations after the dam was finished was insufficient and dirty. I sent Olivia a picture of a kid in a bathtub. Mm-hmm. The water is just black. Yeah, It's in one of the resources I use. There are photos of how unsatisfactory the conditions were while this was happening and even for a while after. And it's just... 
I mean, I guess you can almost, as a person who's living in 2021 and wasn't alive in 1967, you can think that it might not have been that weird for someone to not have running water who was living in a remote place, but I I can't. I can't imagine what... And there are people still living that way today. Right, right. (laughs) There are situations in the United States where people don't have clean water. Don't have clean water, yeah, still. And so another quote from the MHA Nation website... Within a few years, the three tribes' members were obliged to move to new homes. Relocation and salvage procedures established by the Corps proved unsatisfactory. Private movers contracted by the Army were unreliable, and tribal members were denied permission to cut most of their timber prior to inundation. Flooding the bottomlands rendered the residual reservation useless. Settlement payments were too low to provide a full reestablishment of most families. The uprooting of kinship and other primary groups destroyed the community life so fundamental to the Indians' culture. In Yellowbird, there are a couple points where a photo is referenced when certain people in the book are talking about the three affiliated tribes' history. In it, a group of indigenous men surround a white man signing a paper. To the left, one man grimaces and wipes tears from his face. This man was George Gallette the chairperson for the three affiliated tribes at the time that they gave up rights to the bottomlands. They did not agree or want to give up their land, but they feared that if they didn't cooperate, they would never be compensated, or later deals for the sale of the land would be even worse. By the time the documents were signed, the land had already been claimed by eminent domain, the right of the government to take private land for public use. Of the signing of the Garrison Dam Act, Gallette said, We will sign this contract with a heavy heart. With a few scratches of the pen, we will sell the best part of our reservation. Right now, the future doesn't look too good to us. Just devastating. Absolutely. Whole part, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, I understand also, like, in writing this, I felt like it was, I mean, it's so important you cannot, you can't skate past this. No, definitely it, not. It's, it's part of the book. The book mm-hmm. is not just about one person or the people involved in a, you know, a murder mystery. It's, it's so many things at once. And I mean, just like we talked to Rachel Monroe about, letting something be, you know, kind of an unfinished, messy story, letting something not have an ending is good. And, but I see how some people don't like this book. Or when people give critical reviews that say they felt like they were sold something they didn't ask for. Yeah. I suppose I can see that, but I don't understand how after reading it, you're not like, yeah, this is a true crime book. Right, right. Absolutely. Because all it is is crime. It's not necessarily just, right, like you said, a murder mystery. It's about a crime against a group of people, like repeatedly taken advantage of by the U.S. government who is supposed to be helping them. Right. And even if you can't call it a crime, it's it's past that. It's a complete degradation, disrespect, Mm -hmm. exploitation. Like, even though some of those things might not be punishable by law, and certainly they were sanctioned by the federal government, so I guess they're not illegal. It's just... They should be, though. Yeah. There's no excuse for what's happened. Yeah. And continues to happen. So to dive back into Lissa, without her, this story truly would have never been told. We will get more into her involvement with Casey's disappearance in the next episode, but thought it was important to lay some groundwork for her first in order to understand how she came to care so deeply about seeking justice for someone she didn't know. Lissa is a member of the three affiliated tribes. She was born in 1968 to Irene Yellowbird and Leroy Chase, both members of the MHA Nation. 
Her mother, Irene, was only 21 at the time, and her father, who would never really be a part of her life, was a young man in the Air Force. Due to the era and Irene's mother's Catholic viewpoints, Lissa was to live with her grandmother, Madeline Yellowbird. This arrangement only lasted seven months when Irene decided to join the radical mindset that was the 60s and raise Lissa on her own, a single mom at the age of 21. This was the start to Irene chasing education. While she and Lissa bounced from place to place, never staying anywhere longer than three years, making their way across the entire United States, just about from California to Wisconsin. Lissa's history from her teenage years into adulthood is a tangled web of trauma and someone doing their best to survive with the cards they've been dealt, while simultaneously making some reckless decisions. One of the things I appreciate most about this book is how much detail we get into her past and how it is written in a way that I never once felt as the reader that I should be judging Lissa for some of the choices she made, which I feel like you definitely, any other author could have absolutely painted that picture. Like, here's, yes. you know, all the horrible decisions, all the decisions that you maybe think are wrong that this woman did. And like, here's your chance to like have feelings about it. And never once did I feel that way while reading this. Yes. I think there is kind of a 50-50 split there between Sierra writing so honestly and without any input or influence mm-hmm. over that section of the book. But it's also 50% who you are as a person reading the book, because that was another huge issue I had with the reviews I read. And I didn't read any reviews until right. after yeah. I read the book. But there are definitely people out there who are like, why are we talking about this drug addict woman for so long? And I'm just like, don't you get it? You didn't this get woman the point overcame then. everything. <laughs> right. This woman overcame so much. And now is, I mean, we're going to get into it, but like she is such a stronghold for yeah. other people. Yeah. She has overcome all of the bullshit that life threw her to be this, like, even through the bullshit was independent mm-hmm didn't give a shit, constantly looked out for her family, even though she faltered in some aspects. She always did what she had to do to survive. And along the way, even though some of those choices you might deem are selfish, just came out on the other side to like give so much of herself to other people. Exactly. Those people just didn't get it. Truthfully. Uh, Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I think that can be a generalization to sum it up. Yeah. So I won't get into every aspect of her history just because I really do want you to go buy this book and read it for yourself. Lissa's history as a woman, a mother, and an indigenous American are all pertinent to how she got involved with Casey's disappearance and how something like Casey's disappearance and other crimes we will cover could even have the opportunity to take place on the reservation. Like her mother, Lissa became pregnant at a young age. She was 19 when she had her daughter, Shauna. She went on to graduate from the University of North Dakota with a criminal justice degree, though it would take what felt like a lifetime and multiple near-death experiences before Lissa would ever put that degree to any kind of use other than running from the cops. By 1994, at the age of 26, she now had three children, Shauna, Lindsay, and CJ, and was in an abusive marriage with a man named OJ, who would remain a constant presence in her life. He was a drug dealer and the reason she started dealing and using herself. In quotes, when Lissa became an addict, everything she loved turned to water in her hands, and everything she lost that slipped through the grasp, she believed she deserved to lose. Shauna would describe Lissa to Sierra in one simple sentence, my mom is an addict, and she meant this in the broadest sense. And Lissa was set on being the best at everything. That mindset included being the best drug dealer. I loved the section of the book. She references, like, you know, 
there are points before and after drugs where the obsession was plants or mm-hmm. she bought a piano and was determined to learn how to play it and be really good at it or she bought a camera and decided she was into filmmaking yes. and i just felt so deeply connected to that description of like same what's going to save me this week what can i occupy mm-hmm. my time with what can mm-hmm. i learn what's going to make me better or just like what's going to be fun and pass the time right right and so a quote that i really liked from this part of the book Always they kept moving from hotels to shelters, from apartments they rented to the houses of friends, and from the papery walls of all the places they lived, her mother had hatched again and again, changed and yet the same. Lissa made the difficult decision to let Lindsay live with her biological father and put Shauna and CJ in foster care in 1994, assuming that since she willingly placed them there, she would be able to pick them up again when she was in a safer situation. This would not be the case, though. There are a number of reasons listed in the book why child services determined that Lissa's children would be better off in foster care. Some included her transient lifestyle, her jobs not being appropriate for children, which at the time she was bartending, and her missed scheduled appointments to spend time with them. Yet both CJ and Shauna were being abused in their foster care homes, but as children, they didn't know how to say these things or were not believed. In quotes, one day, after Shauna and CJ had been in foster care for a year, a social worker called and said Lissa could come get them, offering no explanation. Nor did the social worker explain how CJ ended up with a traumatic brain injury. Just an ultimate failing of another system. Right. This would be the first instance where Lissa had lost rights as a mother, but it wouldn't be the last. Throughout the remainder of the 90s, her children would be taken from her and placed with their grandmother or in the system a handful of times. Most of these instances included Lissa using. When they were taken in 1996, she was so high she didn't even realize what was happening. And in 1998, she gave birth to her fourth child, Obi, whose father was OJ. And in 1999, she would give birth to her fifth and last child, Micah. This year was a traumatic year for Lissa and her children. OJ was in and out of their lives, but it was one of the first times she had all of her kids with her again, minus Lindsay, who remained with her father. And she was sober. Sometime in 99, Lissa relapsed, OJ being the culprit by showing her his stash in hopes that she wouldn't be able to say no. And on December 22nd, 1999, she bought crack and got high. OB was less than two, and Micah was just a few months old at the time. OJ was staying at home with the kids that night, and Lissa ended up leaving her phone in the car so that she wouldn't be bothered. When she got back to her phone, there was a message from OJ saying if she didn't come home soon, he was going to kill the kids. So she rushes home in a panic to be met by OJ with a baseball bat. And in quotes, by the time the ambulance arrived, Lissa's body was cut and bruised, her wrist broken, the bone showing through, her left eye swollen shut. Shauna is the one who called 911 and calmly told the operator, in quotes, my stepdad is trying to kill my mother. She was around 11 years old and ran away shortly after this incident. In the following years, Shauna would be the first to appear back on Fort on the Fort Berthold Reservation, where her grandmother, Irene, picked her up from school after she had been missing for nearly two months. Lissa would follow shortly after with CJ, Micah, and Obi, living with her grandmother and then a shelter before renting a home in Minot in 2001. On January 17, 2002, a train hauling anhydrous ammonia was derailed, spreading ammonia gas across the city of Minot. 31 cars in total of the 112-car train derailed just four miles from the center of the city, and five of them were carrying the ammonia. Emergency services sent out a notice that residents in the area should close their doors and windows, 
boil water, and use wet rags over their mouths to ventilate the air coming towards them. One person would die, while 13 were hospitalized. And in quotes, Micah suffered damage to his lungs, and Obi began to have seizures after the train derailment. Micah's lungs were severely damaged by this incident, and doctors told Lissa he would never live past the age of 12. So this experience for her, having her youngest children become ill and, I mean, nearly die in Micah's case, along with her new boyfriend being a meth dealer, called, caused Lissa to spiral once again. In September of 2002, Lissa being arrested began to become a regular occurrence. Anything from drug use to assault would end up on her record. It wouldn't be until the summer of 2005 that she was arrested for more serious offenses. After receiving tips from Lissa's own mother, she was surveilled by the police for three days, and on July 22, 2005, she was arrested for possession. In total, in quotes, Lissa would be arrested six times, charged twice for possessing meth with intent to deliver. And on January 11, 2007, she was sentenced to prison to serve two sentences concurrently, one for five years and one for ten. Lissa had refused to cooperate with prosecutors and turn in her other drug dealer connections because she wasn't a snitch. And she knew they would likely that this would likely mean serving the full sentence of 10 years, maybe being released a little early for good behavior. But she was very surprised when just over a year into her sentence, she was released and on April 4th, 2008, moved to a halfway house in Fargo to remain for an additional 10 months before being granted parole. She was released from the halfway house on February 10th, 2009, having been in the state's custody for just over two years. Lissa spent her first year out of prison reconnecting with family and the area she grew up in. The oil boom had drastically begun to shape the reservation, and it wasn't as she had left it. More tribal members were addicts than ever before. Quote, the life expectancy on the reservation was 57 years old, 20 years below the average. At the time, she was feeling like sobriety would be a breeze. This ease back into society came crashing down when Lissa was hit by a truck in September of 2010 and dragged for 10 yards. Quote, Lissa broke an ankle, her pelvis, her left arm, and cracked five vertebrae in her neck. She obviously couldn't work after the incident and spent weeks in a nursing home in order to recover and regain strength. To keep her mind away from drugs, she diligently journaled, just one of many obsessions she would gain throughout sober life. Throughout 2011, while trying to regain the trust and past connection to her relatives and family, Lissa grew close with her uncle Charles Chucky Yellowbird. Chucky had returned home to the reservation to die. He had cirrhosis of the liver. From the book, you really get a sense for Lissa's empathy and ability to care when no one else will. Her mother described Lissa to Sierra as, quote, a fanatic with a bleeding heart giving weight to weightless things. Chucky quickly fell into a depression, but Lissa didn't let that stop her from trying. In the last few weeks she spent with Chucky, she told him, Uncle, I don't want you to die alone. I want to sit there with you because there's something to be learned from this. I want to share that pain with you because when you leave this earthly physical being, I don't want you to feel like you're the only one. And on December 6, 2011, Chucky passed away, quote, 11 weeks before Christopher Clark would disappear. So Christopher Clark, or Casey, as we will refer to him, was 28 years old when he found himself working on the Fort Berthold Indian Reservation for a trucking company called Blackstone. Originally from Spokane, Washington, what brought Casey to North Dakota was a personal connection. Years prior to his move to North Dakota, Casey met James Henriksen, who would one day go on to develop Blackstone with his girlfriend, Sarah Kreveling. In 2008, the friends went separate ways when Casey moved to Texas to live with his girlfriend at the time and began working for a car dealership. 
In 2011, the pair were reunited when James, who was also living in Texas running a masonry company, told Casey the business wasn't doing well, and he was headed to North Dakota for the oil boom. He offered Casey a job at his trunking company, Blackstone. In his early months in North Dakota, Casey lived with Sarah and James in a trailer in Van Hook. By December that year, 2011, he was making enough money to get his own place. Casey's job at Blackstone was a pusher and arranging contracts to haul water to and from drilling sites, which according to Oilfield Glossary, a pusher is, in quotes, the location supervisor for the drilling contractor. So while in North Dakota, Casey didn't have much of a life outside of the oil fields. A job like this, especially during a boom, is all about putting in as many hours as possible to get as much oil drilled, barreled, and sold. All he did was work and hang out at the casino bar. He did make one good friend outside of his boss, who also worked for Blackstone, Rick Airy. Rick was a little more experienced with the industry, having started working in the oil fields in 2008. From Rick, we find out that Casey's move into his own place may have been about more than just having enough money to do so. One evening in December of 2011, Casey had Rick over for dinner where he told him that he was planning on leaving Blackstone, taking a number of the contracts he personally wrote and formed relationships with to a new company, and Rick agreed to join him. So before we continue on with Casey, we're going to dive into Blackstone's history a little bit. While Sarah and James were living in Texas, they began to develop Blackstone, an oil trucking company to operate in North Dakota. They received a number of loans from various individuals on and off the reservation, but would have at least one hurdle to jump over before having the ability to operate and place their headquarters on Fort, on Fort Berthold. <laughs> Jesus. Fort. <laughs> <laughs> on Fort Berthold. That hurdle would be the nature of their business operations and the fact that they were two white people making plans to operate and headquarter on a reservation. In 1983, the tribe passed an ordinance called TARO. It established a tribal employment rights office who put incentives in place for companies to hire tribal members or tribal business owners. If you were in this class of people, you were considered tier one status, meaning you essentially had first dibs on contracts and only when you turned them down would the contract go to someone not in a tier one status? So this was put into place for all the reasons we've already been discussing to protect tribal members from being taken advantage of on their own reservation. To quote from the Council for Tribal Employment Rights website, Taro was enacted to address the deplorable rate of poverty, unemployment, and underemployment that exists among native people living on reservations. From my absolutely zero background and knowledge in the oil field operation, what I've gathered from this research is that Blackstone, like I said, was a trucking company. So their entire operation was to contract out truck drivers to drive water to and from the drilling sites. If there were other trunk trucking companies on the reservation, which there were, Blackstone would never be successful because of the Tarot Act. Other companies owned by tribal members would get first dibs of contracting truckers, therefore Blackstone would be left with either the rejects or no one at all to drive their trucks. Their way around this was by partnering, partnering with a tribal member, Steve Kelly. Kelly was previously the lawyer for the tribe, but left that position in 2008 when the oil boom first started. He founded Trustland Oilfield Services, which would become the largest truck operator on the reservation. This was James and Sarah's ticket to operating and getting rich off the reservation. Their relationship didn't last long due to a falling out. James and Sarah initially agreed to an 80-20 split of the profits, where they were only making 20%, 
but by the end of December of that year, they cut their contracts with Kelly and moved on to a company about to become even larger, Mahashu Energy, which was owned by Tex Hall, the tribal chairman for the three affiliated tribes. Blackstone turned into a subcontractor to Mahashu Energy. In quotes, Blackstone paid 20% of its profits to Mahashu. By partnering with Tex Hall, James and Sarah had Tier 1 status and could bid on contracts normally reserved for companies owned by tribal members. They essentially gained 60% of their profits back by breaking their contract with Kelly. When Sierra interviewed Tex Hall, he told her, quote, Do you think they would have put us here if they had known? The 2000s was not the first time that oil was prospected on the land of the three affiliated tribes. A few wells were drilled in the 50s and again in the 70s, but the complicated allotment agreements made it too cumbersome for companies to pursue anything further. It was Texas' goal to only let drilling happen when the financial conditions were fair and could be initiated by companies that tribal members had stake in. The details of the business deals throughout the book is incredible. To understand what happened, you have to get a copy and read deeply. (laughs) Like there's so we're giving you just the most basic understanding here. Many companies underpaid for the land rights and then would flip them for a profit to another company over and over again. Tribal members were swindled by those unburdened by poverty and the lack of education or hidden information about the situation. The rich continued to get richer. The tax director at the time, Mark Fox put it in stark terms for Murdoch quote, after centuries of colonization, of federal entities weakening and displacing tribal institutions, it did not have the resources, let alone the expertise or regulatory power, to control the oil industry. The tribes also did not have jurisdiction to prosecute non-tribe members when they came in droves to work in the oil fields. Just like Mark said, centuries of federal meddling left them unable to handle the consequences of the oil boom. Speed forced everything to a fever pitch, and certain tribe members were, quote, chosen to know about the boom before it hit, securing lease agreements from lot sharers. Some of the chosen people benefited from the system in perpetuity. Oil successes led to successes in other parts of the business, like supply trucking and equipment. I think there's a lot of, you know, people at the top were told, hey, this is going to happen. Tell whoever you think could help get people on board. One person who was chosen to know would go to their families and say, this is going to really set us up financially. We all need to agree to this. So just by this, you know, quiet word of mouth system, you hear that we're going to make some money. Mm-hmm. You don't, you don't know that you should maybe hire an appraiser or some yeah. kind of contractor and yeah. get the land evaluated for yourself. I, some of the statistics that I read in research and throughout the book are like people are being widely underpaid right. for the use of their land. Like not knowing that just because someone offered you 18%, you actually could have gotten 35%. And uh. You know, just yeah. just like before with the garrison dam, mm-hmm. being afraid that if you don't take the deal you're being given, someone's just going to steal from you. Right. Oh, yeah. And even in this circumstance, a lot of them, it was a family member who s- bought the land from them and then turned around and sold it to a larger company for a huge profit that they kept for themselves. Yeah. Which, yeah. So it's like you're just, you're not even just, you're not only being taken advantage of by these outside companies coming into your reservation, but by your own tribe members and family members. Like, yes, in some instances, yes. Yeah, very, very sad. So back into Casey, shortly after Casey confessed his plans to Rick to leave Blackstone, Casey disappears from Fort Berthold Reservation on February 22nd, 2012, having been there for less than a year, and he is never to be seen again. 
Lissa would receive a Facebook, a Facebook message from a relative in the early summer of 2012. The message was a post by Jill Williams, Casey's mom, in quotes, pleading for any information regarding the whereabouts of her son. Chucky's death left room for a new obsession, project, addiction, call it what you want, to enter Lissa's life. And here was a fellow mother in need searching for her son. Lissa knew the convoluted laws surrounding the reservation and investigating missing persons who were not a part of the tribes. Gathering information about a white man who went missing on a reservation would be a nearly impossible mountain to climb for someone living off the reservation. Lissa decided to send a private message to Jill on June 2nd, 2012, and this is what it said. Hi to Casey's mom. I am a member of the three affiliated tribes, which headquarters in Newtown, North Dakota. My family, which consists of most of the reservation, mostly lives on Fort Berthold. That is federal land, and there are many hoops to jump in order to get information or get the ball rolling on an investigation. I have many connections there and would like to help you if you need me to. I'm sorry to hear about your boy. I'm a mother too. My prayers are with you. When Sierra first met Lissa in 2014 and asked her to share her story on how she came to be involved with Casey's disappearance, she described the scene as follows. In quotes, her speech was rushed and giddy, her legs kicked beneath the chair, and her hands were in flight, touching pens and cigarettes in the Bluetooth earpiece and darting in her lap. She did not seem nervous. Rather, she seemed so intent on telling the story that she lost track of her own body. Only in her expressions did she retain full control. And that's where we stop for this episode. Episode one. Next time, we will get more into how Lissa really dug her heels into an investigation looking for Casey and all the things she starts to unravel. Mm -hmm. And in addition, explaining more about the relationship between Lissa and Sierra and how they came to work together in trying to see what they could find out about this case. And this whole situation goes to places you cannot ever imagine. No. Based on the background, (laughs) you know, the background information that we gave you about Blackstone and the oil boom and the Garrison Dam and, you know, the historical context that has to be laid out. um, This book kind of feels like the first almost three quarters of it are just like slow, slow, slow burn. Mm -hmm. Tons of details, very minimal but impactful moments of like, oh, shit, something's happening. Yeah, it's a lot to take in. Yes, this is definitely a book that even for me who like, I want to read about what someone who happened to be in the room on the same day had. Like, you know, I want to know what their shoes were. Like, (laughs) pointless details. Even for someone who loves pointless details, these are all very, very relevant details. And it was a lot to digest just because this is something we're coming into completely blind, having Mm -hmm. no idea about any of this history. And you have to understand that all to fully appreciate the story. Yeah. It's incredible, and I'm very excited to keep writing. Yeah, I'm excited to bring you guys part two in however many more parts that will follow. Yep, I'm not going to try to make an estimation anymore. <laughs> Mackenzie's always trying to make it two to three episodes, and then it turns into five. <laughs> I don't think it'll and be that our... long, but we are going to give you a couple more parts. Yeah, and I just just like Savage Appetites with Rachel Monroe. Even if I give you four episodes, read the book. There's 50% of it that I didn't tell you. Seriously, (laughs) there's so much. So much. Yeah, overall, I feel like Yellowbird is going to be one of the most important books I've ever read in my life. Agreed. Definitely. Even if you buy it and feel like 
you're not really getting what you thought you were getting you, at the end i you think you can appreciate it. yeah yeah you can appreciate what you got instead mm-hmm. i remember it's, i messaged Mackenzie because it was taking me a while to get through because it is a lot and it's like a book that i i mean i couldn't even get through a whole chapter in one sitting i had to like take it in chunks and like break because it's so much information being thrown at you and so much information that you didn't know that you know and this isn't even like she mentions this does not even cover all of the history that should be included in any of these stories but once you get through you know closer to the end part of the book uh sierra murdoch inputs herself into the narrative and that's where it kind of picks up speed and makes it you know just a little more relatable in like a reading a true crime book could be. Yeah. I mean, I, we've talked about this before. My MO is always that I want the writer to be a presence in the book. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I There's something about the honesty of that yeah, that definitely. I really resonate with. And I like hearing about why you chose to write this. What, because I feel like those are the majority of my questions when I yeah, finish a book. Yeah. Why did you make this choice? Why did you do this? And there are no questions, quite honestly. By the time you finish reading... This book, you get to hear from yeah. Sierra Murdoch yeah. and why she made the decision she did, what kind of access she had. She describes all kinds of situations from her own viewpoint. And it's yep. a definitely a one-of-a-kind true crime book. Yep. Everybody go get it. Start reading so that by the next installment, you're, you know, <laughs> a little way Yeah, you're kind of caught up. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, as always... Thanks to everyone that's listening. Thanks for supporting us. Thanks to our patrons that help us keep this tiny little show on track. And if you, oh, I just like forgot what I was saying. (laughs) (laughs) As always, you can follow us on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. On Instagram and Twitter, we are Dead From Champs. And on Facebook, we are Death by Champagne Podcast. If you like our book club series or our other random episodes, if you like our content, you can find us on Patreon at patreon.com slash death by champagne podcast. And until next time, we're here to keep you up at night. Hail Satan. And pop some bottles. Bye. Bye. Amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen, Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups, it's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com. What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? 
At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders. From ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities, CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. Amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen, Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups, it's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com. What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders. From ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities, CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers.